ago and uh, I missed it actually uh, because it was really cloudy out so couldn't couldn't see the moon or the eclipse or uh, that beautiful red orange color uh, you know there's pictures online but it's not the same as, as looking at the moon yourself but uh, you know that's all you got that's all you got uh, but I did see the moon and the sky last night and it wasn't red and it was beautiful and it looked full and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you just can't see things when they're happening, uh, but they're, they're still happening and, and I, I dreamed I saw it, uh, I saw a beautiful uh, collage of moons in the sky and, uh, you know, that happened in my dreams, so that was nice. Uh, anyway, it's it's been pretty bleak out there. And uh, it's hard not to be filled with despair and hopelessness. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here to welcome you into the Violet Hour and share some beautiful words and music with you and just give you a place to rest for a little while and uh, take a little refuge from the world. Uh, so I am really thrilled to be reading to you today from a gorgeous novel by Mona Arshi, Somebody Loves You. And this is a really beautiful book published by And Other Stories. And I'm I'm just going to jump in and read to you from it. Uh, I'm going to start at the beginning, but I'll be, be jumping around. So uh, this is just to give you a little taste of it. And then hopefully you'll go out and Get your get your paws on your own copy and, and read the whole thing. But uh, but let's uh, let's share some of it together. Eggs. A man is offering her a bowl. She peers inside, and there is an egg nestled in light peat close to the surface. It is a small blue egg, perfect and complete. She gently lifts it out of the bowl and places it in her mouth, and the egg still warm, breaks onto her tongue, makes her wretch a little, but still she swallows it. She closes, then reopens her eyes, and a bluebird escapes from her mouth. Then another, and another, until the room is filled with their iridescent turquoise feathers and clamor of yellow-black beaks. A few settle on her head, others perch on her shoulders, But then after a few minutes, and for no discernible reason, they quickly flit back inside, a hymn of bodies returning as they enter back through her parted lips. Several fly into and penetrate her torso. When the last bird has gone, 
She closes her mouth and leaves the room. Tristan Allen with Blue Door Here. Foxes. The day my sister tried to drag the baby fox into our house was the same day my mother had her first mental breakdown. In many ways, it was the perfect morning for a breakdown. The rain was spitting softly. The Parker's dog just wouldn't stop barking. It went on emitting that terrible noise like it was a machine loaded with everlasting batteries. In the living room, I had just finished watching a long documentary about wild kangaroos. 
Upstairs, there was a doctor, the aunties, and my father, of course. There was a toy, a miniature replica camera that my sister was jealous of, and she kept prizing the camera from my fingers and pointing it at things she liked the look of and saying, See, I can click, I can click, till eventually I had to steal it away from her and hang the long leather strap around my neck. For days we had known about the foxes. They had come closer and closer to the house and had been chewing at the garden boots my mum had stored under the corrugated plastic shelter. I went into the kitchen and the side door was open, and there was Rania crouching on the steps carrying a bundle, a blanket covering the body so that only its ears and eyes were visible. I heard the front door click open, then slam shut. The fox yelped and slipped away, and we didn't see my mother again for three whole months. Marrow Since infancy, my sister has been stimulated by gore, guts, and blood. My parents said that when she was still in her buggy, she would sniff the air, aroused by the smell of the butchers, then unbuckle her harness and head to the spectacle of the shop window. She would be at the front of the circle, pushing forward, wanting but also needing to see. For some time, my sister's most frequent questions were, could you see the bone? And how much blood? Rania befriended Martin Higgins at school, who was prone to long nosebleeds. She was always coming to his aid when he was bleeding across the school field during sports lessons or after too much sunshine, which disturbed the delicate blood vessels in this pale and nervous boy's nostrils. Whilst the teacher struggled to stem the flow with cigar-shaped cotton rolls, Rania would be by her side, holding napkins, and asking, How many pints do you think he's leaked? When will he start clotting? Will he pass out? How long will he keep bleeding for? Usually about an hour and a half. For some time, my parents harbored a belief that their eldest daughter might train as a doctor or a surgeon. It was a short-lived fantasy. As it quickly became apparent, Rania wasn't the slightest bit interested in healing anything. She was just morbidly inquisitive. My parents checked their ambitions and downgraded their hopes to dentistry, followed by pharmacology, then podiatry, until a little while later, they abandoned all hope of the sciences. Beginnings. My name is Ruby. I am skinny and superfluously tall. I am skinny because I have inherited both my parents' propensity for growing thin bones. If you met him, probably you would think my father is short. He tells us he is not unusually so for an Indian man, but by European standards, he is willing to concede. When my family says that I am too tall, I assume they mean both in the Western and Indian sense. I suppose I should say at this stage that both my parents are normalish talkers. Let's get that out of the way straight off. I'm not much of a talker by whatever standards you choose to apply. The first time I spoke out loud at school, I said the word sister and tripped all over it. I tried a second time, and my tongue got caught on the middle syllable hiss and hovered there. The third time... A teacher asked me a question, and I opened my mouth as a sort of formality, but closed it softly, knowing with perfect certainty that nothing would ever come out again. I was certain about this the next morning, and even more certain about it the day following that. I uttered absolutely nothing. It became the most certain thing in my life. I was tested for oral dysfunction, mumps, and general stupidity, 
For a few months, I was even sent up to a clinic to sit in a room with a young doctor. She passed me a cup of broken crayons and some colored paper to draw whatever my mind rested on. I think I knew at an early age that this doctor's job was to gently fish inside my head, to get right to the bottom of my talking problems. Because I was a pleaser, I tried very hard with my crayon drawings, and it seemed important to be especially curious about whether the little dolls she placed in my lap were wearing knickers. In those sessions, I drew as if my life depended on it. I drew forests seething with all manner of creatures, and I made up a complicated bubble family of rainbow-filled characters. I drew wild deserts and used up all the precious gold crayons for sand dunes and wasted all the browns on engorged cacti, which seemed to irritate the doctor at the end of our first session. Ruby, what if another little girl or boy wanted the gold crayons for their special drawing and they were all used up? Just think how very sad they might feel. And the way she looked at me at that moment made me feel more wretched and ashamed than anything else up to this point in my life, even more ashamed than that time I ended up peeing on Mrs. Henderson's yellow welcome mat in reception because I couldn't unstrap my dungarees in time. At the end of the sessions at the clinic, I would place my array of paintings on the floor for inspection, and the doctor would stand up quickly, peer over my shoulder, turn her head this way and that, weighing up, and then select a few to take away with her. Once, she tilted her head to the side for a long while, whilst I waited in the silence, and she took nothing at all. I was free to go home with the pile of rejected papers, which now disgusted me just as much as the dirty gum-flecked carpet they rested on. Soon afterwards, I began having night terrors accompanied by wetting my bed, though I had apparently been a dry girl from an early age. My parents got scared and withdrew me from the sessions. My symptoms quickly disappeared, to their great relief. It was bad enough that their daughter was a dumb mute. A deranged, incontinent mute would have been a step too far.
That was Tristan Allen with Nirna. Ina. Mad Ina. Mad Ina had not always been mad. Once upon a time, she was just Ina, who was retired, and before that, according to my mother, she was Ina who had been given a little silver tray memento from the local maternity ward for delivering more babies in a year than any other midwife. Both my parents knew Ina before before and were protective of her memory. Unfortunately, it was difficult for my sister and me to remember her any other way. Now Ina is only allowed on supervised outings. Sometimes she escapes and is seen, with her cloud of white hair and blue watery eyes that are desperate, looking for something that cannot be found. She waited for me behind the bushes and grabbed my hand and wrenched my body towards her and said, Do you seek the heavenly pearl, the godly pearl spoken in Matthew thirteen forty-five to 46 I looked into her pale eyes, scared. I nodded my head slowly. Good girl, good girl. Then she loosened her grip and wandered off down the garden. It felt as if Ina had given me a gift, imparted something vital and important that I might not understand in my tender years but might need later on. I wrote it down when I was back in my room. She had gifted me a parable, a very powerful talisman-like object. It seemed to me that there was a lot to be learned from parables, that they could teach you life skills and give you a way of being. You had to look underneath the words of Jesus, a pearl was not just a pearl, and you had to look beyond the savage jungle of the Bible stories, of Samson slaying his enemies with a poor donkey's freshly killed jawbone. I thought if I concentrated hard enough and shut out all the other noises around me, I could let Jesus and all the other gods in the world inside, and I too could write parables. It fast became a little hobby of mine. The gods visited me at annoying, unexpected times when I was not ready for them at all. When I asked, I did not receive, and when I least expected them, they arrived with no effort. I took to carrying a pen in the elastic of my knickers and would write them down, on my arms, little aphorisms like, the tree opens and closes and we never hear it, or, even the shiny body of a worm travels with the Lord. Occasionally I enlisted David's help, as I knew if he did it, he would be very careful and precise. I can do this for you, Ruby. Trust me, I can write it on you and make it look really nice, he reassured me, scrutinizing the paper. At some point it became very hard to write on my midriff. My little breasts interfered, and I was still of prepubescent age where breasts were not to be trifled with. Slowly, David and I would begin our quiet ceremony. I would stretch the skin on my torso taut as canvas on a frame, and he would feed the tip of the pen and copy the patterns in the curly-cued script, and when his mouth was very near my navel, I would touch the top of his hair lightly with my hand. All good things end, and it came to a head one day as Matilda in gym class put up her hand in the changing rooms. "'Excuse me, Miss Hunt, Ruby is poisoning her blood with her pen.' and then Miss Hunt took me to another room and had a careful look at my parables. I thought she might have read them at least, and gained a little depth and insight, but all she said was, No, Ruby, no, this won't do at all. You need to find ways to control your imagination. The Eno we knew liked Frosty's cereal, malt loaf, and mushroom soup out of a tin. Being in Ina and Alf's kitchen was like stepping into a foreign TV show without the subtitles, or the sultry, high-cheekboned women. 
Their kitchen had the smell of old boiled eggs, overladen with the smell of dark tobacco smoke. And there was another smell I couldn't reach. Maybe because when you are young, you haven't smelt all the things you are going to smell yet. There were rumors of a small dog no one had seen that was being kept in the house, and I kept an eye out for the creature, but didn't come upon it on this occasion. The kitchen was originally painted in a bright yellow. The walls were very dirty now, but shiny, glossy, and there were raised brownish marks flecking the surface like little raisins. I didn't know if they were dead flies or even bits of desiccated meat, and I didn't want to touch anything. A pair of tall deck chairs were set up, and a transistor radio between them emitted some sort of music from a bygone era. Ina perked up when she saw me. She had been busy in a grubby, overlit corner, her body hunched over something. She had a plate and offered me an object. Have a corned beef roly. Go on, have two if you like. I lifted my hands out of the pockets of my trousers and reached forward reluctantly to take the thing, which resembled a small sausage roll, and placed it in my mouth and began to chew. Under the thin pastry was something masquerading as meat. I chewed and chewed some more. Some of the pastry flakes got stuck in my braces, but that was the least of my problems. The wobbly mints refused to buckle under the pressure of my tongue. I knew what I was experiencing in that kitchen was a grown-up food dilemma. I must either spit out the fatty bolus and upset old Ina, or swallow it and risk gagging and suffocating. I grew hot and flushed. I took a gamble and made an attempt to swallow it, but my stomach resisted. Ina was trying to hand me a little box that had probably lived on her dressing table for many years. Ina liked to give us presents. We weren't allowed to keep them, mostly, as they tended to be mundane household objects that she and Alf might want to use again. Blue-patterned gravy boats, a bedpan, once an old-fashioned ironing board. "'We should sell them to a museum,' said Rania, before my mother made us take them back. But this gift looked as if she had carefully thought it out. It was square and covered in a very heavy silver wrap, with a tiny ancient nail to secure the foil. "'You wind it up clockwise, dearie, and it plays a little ditty you can dance to. Even little brown girls can dance to it.' She smiled, and I smiled back nervously into her open, pale face. I gave her my brightest smile and was trying to back out of the kitchen, sweating, thinking. Fortunately, the moon was alive and bright that night. I waited till I found a drain down the side alley of the house, whereupon I laid my silver gift on the step and vomited into the drain. Satin Once my mother had an accident. Moonlight, secateurs. When I was a toddler, and there's not much to say about it except some of me remembers and some of me does not. There were striped curtains, floor-length with vertical panels of cream and chocolate satin. They were soft and silky, and I liked to press my cheek against the wide band. The curtains were hung above a radiator, so the lining was always warm, and it felt safe until it wasn't. Now that I know planting by moonlight is a thing, it makes more sense, and I've pieced it together in a bric-a-brac fashion. According to folklore, root vegetables will start singing in the moonlight, and this is the best time to tend to them. These are the things I've collected together over the years. An aborted scream. A scared-looking bird on a mound of wet leaves. 
a used, flipped-over mattress inside a garage. Though this might be part of another memory, I am not always sure.
That was Tristan Allen with Tunnel Music. I remember. After school, a park, pigeons, and a bench with metal scrolled arms. I am wearing a skirt, the bench slats digging into my legs. So instead I am sitting on my hands waiting for Rania, who's high on top of the new roundabout, a witch's hat, on the highest rung, her hair flung back. I remember a dog I was scared of and wanting to run and my sister shouting, Don't run, Ruby, don't run, from the top of her perch. But I took flight. I ran anyway. My school satchel bumping at my hip, thwack, thwack on the jointed bone. 
and the dog chasing and barking at my side, and Rania jumping off and landing on her knee, the patella shattering like a walnut. The sound of her scream, a high, pure scream of distilled pain, and the yellow dog's owner was at her side. The dog captured and tied to a stump, and Rania crying and grabbing me by the wrist. I told you not to run, Ruby, you silly girl, you stupid dumb girl, Ruby. The wet feeling on the back of my thighs. I'd been bitten by the Alsatian. But had I been bitten, or had I passed water? Where was Mum? I didn't know. I remember my mother earlier in a blue tunic with white flowers, standing under a bright golden-haired tree, which I now know to be mimosa. I thought I saw her flickering like a candle under the mimosa for a few seconds. She was there, I thought, and then she was gone. Tristan Allen with Running Late Dreams My father is climbing. In his dream, he is climbing. But it seems that only God knows where he is climbing to. Nowhere he has ever been. But a place that is faintly familiar. The smell of diesel from below. Concentrated dog piss from the corners of the stairwells. He is somewhere like a city. Perhaps from an American film he might have seen. One of those films when a tower is burning, an inferno, and there are only stairs. But no, he is not going down the stairs in his dream. He is going up those stairs. My father is by nature a hopeful man. That was the cloth he was cut from, and his father before that. His ancestral cloth is steeped in hope. But this is not a very hopeful dream. My father... No one can quite match his sartorial distinctiveness. In other words, my father dresses like shit. For most people, this would present problems, but somehow it increases his infantile charm. My father has a hat he loves to wear, the color of dark fern. He stands in the hallway mirror and adjusts it to what he calls his jaunty angle. In the car, we used to play the animal game. The rules were very basic. 
Rania chose a chimpanzee, which was funny at the time because she had learned how to climb out the bedroom window and walk across the sloped roof of the kitchen to the safety of the patio area. I chose a mouse, just because it was easier, and if I'd chosen a dolphin, the animal I really wanted, Rania would have reminded me that the point of the game was to think of the animal you were most like, not the animal you most aspired to be. Everyone seemed content with me arriving at the mouse as my spirit animal, even though I had no affinity with a mouse or any rodents whatsoever. My father saw himself as an elephant, a predictable choice, a dependable animal who displays clear signs of human-like empathy, an animal that holds extravagant funerals for its loved ones. But I don't believe my father is an elephant. He is most like a canary. His main role in our family is to detect early signs of disturbance and then to flap his wings and warble a little. Of course, usually no one takes notice, or if they notice it's too late, but that isn't, strictly speaking, the canary's fault. Let's choose one for your mother, he said. Let's choose her an animal. But neither Rania nor I wanted to choose an animal for her. We didn't think it was right. If she wanted an animal... She needed to get better and choose her animal herself. Mugs When the garden's asleep for winter, when there's nothing to nurture, nothing to fight for or revive on the borders, when my mother has put away her tools and potting soil in our shed, that strange look of blank hunger takes up residence. These are the beginnings of mug days. Mug days start with unpredictable and approximate mornings. Simple things, like getting out of bed and into some fresh clothes, eating and drinking, have to be gently negotiated, navigated, and pleaded for. My father reverts to martial metaphors like champ, soldier, and warrior, which he employs when he's committed to a night shift, when he needs to leave us alone with our mother. Rania, as the oldest, was the night champ and gets to double lock the door behind him and take on mug duty in our parents' bedroom. During mug days, which sometimes extend to mug weeks, we cling to the simple things. Mostly they are half things. Half a spoon of breakfast cereal into a half-willing mouth. My father, whose glass is always half full, clings on to these halves, because we know nothing, really, except that there will be an end. That she will, for reasons as unreachable and mystifying to us as what brought her to mug days in the first place, simply wake up one morning and appear in the kitchen fully clothed. Not one of us will say anything, but we'll all sit down at the table together and drink our tea and lightly try out conversation again. Rania will test a few words in the air, I will watch Mother Bird put her hands on the kitchen table, lay them out one at a time, like pieces of delicate lace. And I will breathe very quietly, my knees very close to my mother's but not quite touching, and slowly it will almost begin to feel like a normal family again.
That was Tristan Allen with Blue Door There. I guess it's time for a little mise. And on the menu today is a snack size interview with our featured musician, Tristan Allen. As a composer and performer of instrumental music, Tristan Allen's work employs the storytelling power of sound and puppetry to create an imaginary world from scratch. With a background in solo piano, electronic music, and marionette theater, Tristan applies an experimental mode of composition to their work as a puppeteer. In addition to recorded output, Tristan has toured extensively across the globe and shared the stage with artists such as Amanda Palmer, Neil Gaiman, and Marina Abramovich. Tristan's ambitions to combine puppetry with musical works is underway, beginning with a shadow puppet symphony named Tin Iso and the Dawn to be released and premiered later this year. And Tristan was kind enough to answer a few questions for the Violet Hour. 1. What is your earliest memory of a bird? My mom and I took in a plump little bird wounded by a neighborhood cat. The following morning before school, I remember being really sad finding it had not made the night. 2. If you were to write a postcard today to your future self, what age would you pick and what would you say? What would be on the front of the postcard? I'd choose to send a postcard with a basset hound on it to my 40-year-old self hoping to have seen enough of the world to feel content with settling down by then, looking forward to sharing future days with a little-legged dog. 3. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? I take the process super seriously, almost to a fault. I track hours spent working with tallies and compete with my previous self's count month by month. It's not romantic, just try to be making more and more as my creative muscles develop. I often start on piano, improvising till I find something special. Then I try and imagine a setting the musical idea should exist in. This points me towards sounds and instrumentation. Once the music starts telling a story, I move on to puppetry. My work feels done once the moving parts no longer feel separate. 4. What are your five favorite words associated with bone? With cement? With mud? I got nothing. Bone, cement, and mud are great words, though. Remind me of when I was little. I wanted to be a paleontologist. Bonus. If you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? A dragon. I love dragons. Preferably a cute one with a big belly and little legs. Well, thank you so much to Tristan Allen for sharing their music and thoughts in the Violet Hour. And you can check out more of Tristan Allen's music on Bandcamp at tristan-allen.bandcamp.com. That's T-R-I-S-T-A-N-A-L-L-E-N.bandcamp.com. Miss Mousy, it's me, Mr. Bear. Miss Mousy. Oh, hey, Miss Mousy. Uh, is your mouth taped shut? Oh, yeah.
Yeah, it was. Um, I'm I'm a mouth breather mouse, and I uh, I tape my I tape my mouth at, at night uh, to help breathe through my nose. Uh, it's a little trick I learned uh, from a book called Breath. Uh, it's really helped me. Um, but uh, oh, I thought I thought maybe you were not talking like uh, Ruby in uh, Mona Arshi's Somebody Loves You. Oh, it's such a beautiful book. Um, no, I, I talk, but I can I can really relate to Ruby. I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's really hard to talk. Uh, I yeah, sometimes sometimes I have a lot of trouble. Uh, I know it doesn't seem like it. Um, you know, when you and I meet, but uh, yeah, I, I have trouble finding my voice, and sometimes it's it's easier to uh, to stay quiet. Um. So yeah, I just I uh I I love Ruby. I really uh 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 connect with her. Um but uh but no, I'm um I'm I'll talk to you today, Mr. Bear. Oh, thanks. Uh, I'm I'm really glad. Always happy to talk with you, Miss Mousy. Um but I've been uh, I've been thinking a lot about violets lately uh because they're just in bloom everywhere and they're so beautiful and uh and they're they're so cheerful and you know kind of unassuming and and people talk about shrinking violets you know um but i i violets have a lot to offer you know and and they're they they speak to the heart uh they really they lift the heart uh they're um you know they they have an affinity for the heart and and people have worked with them to ease heartache and and other things through throughout history oh uh, yeah i i love violets uh too um they're like you say they're so cheerful yeah i just you know and they um they're not just i mean there's the dark purple but there's the ones with white and purple there's yellow ones there's purple white and yellow i mean just and they're they're all wonderful um but i was doing some reading about folklore around violet uh do you want to hear what uh i what i learned of course miss mousy i always love hearing what you learned well um I didn't know this, but apparently uh, Persephone was picking violets when Hades kidnapped her and dragged her to the underworld. Oh, wow. Uh, I hope she got to bring the violets with her to the underworld. Yeah, I know. She, you know, that she could use them. Um, but uh, and then I also learned that uh, uh, wherever Orpheus went, um, wherever he put down his lyre, um, violets would, would spring up in that spot. And I thought that was really beautiful. Oh, it is, you know, music, music, violets, lifting the heart, that, that all fits. Yeah, it's all, it's not all, um, you know, a lot of it's really dark, as you know, with mythology. Um, so other, other stories say that Zeus fell in love with Io, who was a nymph, um, but then he turned her into a white heifer because, uh, his wife Hera, we knew, was really mad, um, rightfully so, because, you know, he was such a philanderer, um, 
But um, uh, so I guess he was worried about what Hera would do. So he turned Eo into a white heifer, um, which you know isn't isn't really very nice. And maybe he should have just you know left her alone to begin with. But anyway, so Eo was really sad because I mean now she was a cow and all she could eat was grass, and um, she was pretty unhappy about that. So Zeus uh, turned her tears into violets, so then she'd have violets to eat. Oh wow, that's um, that's really sad. Um, eating your own tears. Yeah, I know, but um, you know, but but violets are uh delicious. Um, and they are moist, like tears. Um, you know, or they're moist. They're full of water. So I don't know that that tear connection kind of makes sense to me. Um, so yeah, but eating your own tears. Yeah, that's uh, it's a little a little dark. Uh. But but they're 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 beautiful and you know crying sometimes you just have to cry you know and that that helps ease your heart so uh, but anyway um, I think one of one of the worst stories uh, was about Venus and her son Cupid and um, so Venus asked her son uh, who is prettier her or this you know group of girls and uh, I don't know that's a pretty weird question to ask your son and um, also maybe you know let's not you know compare our looks but anyway whatever uh, Cupid chose the girls um, and uh, Venus got really mad and 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 beat the girls until they were blue and then they turned into violets so uh, oh wow that's um that's yeah, that's pretty uh, violent. I know. Uh, yeah, folks, violence is not love. Um, so violets um, are very much love, but uh, yeah, not so much the violence. Um, anyway, um, I just I love picking violet flowers and leaves to put in salads uh, or make tea with. The flowers are beautiful garnish to put on your drinks or on your soups um, and your salads, your sandwiches, um, you know, and, and eat them, you know, garnish, garnish isn't just pretty. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Uh, so you eat the violets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just like, you know, uh, Eo, when she was a white heifer eating eating the violets in the field. Yeah, we can we can eat them too. Oh, another thing I learned is that uh, there are some butterflies, um, fritillaries, isn't that a great word? Um, and they only lay their eggs on or near violets uh, so that when the eggs hatch, um, that there'll be food for, uh, for the larva. Well, actually, I guess the eggs hatch and the car caterpillars come out and they go, um, they go to sleep all winter, uh, which is why it's good to leave, uh, leaves in your yard, leaf litter, because, um, things like, uh, butterfly caterpillars, um, uh, and bees and other insects, they, you know, they take refuge in that, in that litter. Uh, and then they wake up, uh, in the spring when the violets are starting and they have food to eat. Um, and yeah, that's just so wonderful. Um, and I, I also learned that these butterflies, um, they, so I guess they, they mate late in the summer, um, and then lay their eggs, and then they go to sleep. They take a nap for a few weeks. It's called diapause, and uh, I just thought that so wonderful, and, you know, it sounds so much better than menopause. 
oh yeah, it really does. Uh, you know, just like sleep for a few weeks and nap for a few weeks. Who wouldn't want that? Um, but anyway, I, I digress. Um, and I'd like to remind your listeners, Mr. Bear, that I'm just a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism. And, you know, anything I talk about, people should do their own research. Um, but hopefully they'll be, be interested to learn more about uh, violets and the other things we talk about here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I hope, you know, I I am always interested to uh, learn more things after I talk to you, Miss Mousy. Uh, but uh, tell me, tell me more about what you do with violets, uh, besides your salads and your nibblings and, and garnish. Um, well, I also uh, like to, I made a violet-infused wine. I just put some violets in, in uh, wine. I did a white wine uh, for a couple of days, and, um, and yeah, it's, it's a pretty subtle infusion. I'm not sure, I'm not sure it made a strong flavor change in the wine, uh, but it sure looks pretty. Um, and, uh, oh, um, I made brownies, Mr. Bear. Oh, now you're talking my language, Miss Mousy. Oh, tell me more about these brownies. Well, um, you know, I just, I love brownies. Um, so yeah, these brownies I made with violets and dandelion flowers. And, uh, uh, they're pretty good if I do say so myself. Uh, yeah, uh, do you happen to have any more of these brownies, Miss Mousy? Um, I think there, there might be a couple left in the pan, uh, Mr. Bear, I'd be happy to share with you. Oh, thanks, uh, yeah, a brownie would uh, really hit the spot right about now. Well, let me tell you how I made them, so if you want to make your own, if you like them. Uh, yes, please. So uh, my recipe is based off of one I found online at uh, gimmedelicious.com, but I've modified it a little bit. Um, Anyway, so uh, it's a stick of butter, Um, although if you say a half cup of melted butter, a half cup sounds like not so much. A stick of butter sounds like a lot, but um, yeah, so a half cup or a stick, same thing melted butter, a half cup of unsweetened cocoa, and, um, you know, I like organic fair trade, of course, Um, and then I use a half a cup of honey, I mean, you could use sugar, but I I use a half cup of honey, Uh, two eggs, uh, a teaspoon of vanilla, I always use more than a teaspoon, I mean, probably a tablespoon at least, um, and then a half cup, I actually use my sourdough starter, uh, you can use regular flour, I've never done it with just flour, I do, uh, a half cup of my sourdough starter, um, you can put a little salt if your butter's not salted, um, and you, uh, melt the butter and you stir in the cocoa and the honey um, and then you add the eggs and the vanilla and then the sourdough discard or the flour um, and the salt you mix it all up and then you can add whatever else you like and this is when I added I just added um, 
like one or two handfuls of um, violet blossoms and uh, yellow dandelion petals. Um, I picked them off. I didn't want the green part of the dandelion, just the yellow petals. Um, and I mixed that all in and spread it in a in a pan I greased. And I like to make my brownies in a round pan, so it's kind of like a brownie pie. Um, and yeah, bake at 350 for like 20 to 22 minutes. And um, they're delicious. And, you know, you can um, sprinkle some more blossoms on top. Or I dusted it with a little elderberry powder. Um, I mean, just experiment and get more brownies into your life if you want, you know. Oh, yeah, I definitely want. So um, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, go, let's go sit outside and have some brownies, Miss Mousie, and look at the violets. That sounds wonderful, Mr. Bear. Um, you, uh, you head on, you head on out there, and I will be out in two shakes of a mouse's tail. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. And that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Mona Arshi's Somebody Loves You. I um, uh, hope you'll get your, your paws on your own copy and read the rest of it. Uh, it's published by And Other Stories at andotherstories.org. Uh, you can also check out more of Mona Arshi's work, uh, poetry, and more at her website, monaarshi.com. That's M-O-N-A-A-R-S-H-I dot com. Thanks so much to Mona Arshi and Tristan Allen for letting me share their work with you today. And uh, of course, as always, before leaving, your parting gift is an oracle from Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High, number 74, The Perfect Girl. Robin will do anything to keep George. So let's uh, rifle through, point my paw down, and our oracle is... When Robin went down to breakfast on Monday morning... She was greeted by the unmistakable smell of pancakes and bacon. Her mother was at the stove. I'll read that again. When Robin went down to breakfast on Monday morning, she was greeted by the unmistakable smell of pancakes and bacon. Her mother was at the stove. So that's all the oracle to interpret as you please. I'll be back with you for the new moon. And until then, uh... Take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. 
Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.